Well, Grace Church, hello, whatever time of day you may be watching this, uh, I'm glad that you're tuning in. Uh, whether you're someone who calls Grace home, whether you've joined us over the last year, whether you're someone who's been part of the family for a long time, or whether you're someone who's just kind of checking out a little bit of us online, uh, so glad that you're tuning in uh, today. We are going to jump right in. We've been uh, going through a series uh, on the gospel, that it's more than you think it is. And we are wrapping that up today, but we aren't moving on from it right? This conversation is the lifeblood of everything that we talk about. So we're kind of zooming in on it uh, through this, this first month as we kicked off the year. But this, this theme is through everything that we do and talk about. And what we've been saying is that the gospel is good news. It's good news. We kind of unpack this in a bunch of different ways, but sometimes it can become bland news or it can become commonplace news, right? I, um, you, you know what it feels like to receive good news, right? Especially in light of bad news. Uh, I know different families of the church who struggled for years uh, to get pregnant. And then when you finally get that news that, that there's a little baby in there, it, it changes your world, right? Whether it's yeah, the, the, some, the, the offer on the house went through or graduation, you got accepted. Whatever it is, we've all had those examples in our life of good news. I myself remember a time in 2016. Recently became a fan of NBA basketball, started getting into it, you know. And what I know, I wasn't really into Cleveland sports for a long time, obviously, not very sporty, but what I knew is that it, their history wasn't good. Not, not a very good history with sports winning things. Until June 19th of 2016, when we came back from a 3-1 deficit, the Cleveland Cavaliers, and we brought our championship to Cleveland, right? And the next day, my friend came into work with 10 of these papers, one for all. Monday, June 20th, this was a declaration of good news that now, because of this championship, the city of Cleveland and the state of Ohio are now champions, right? This was good news that changed our status on who we were. We were now champions because of this good news. And the gospel message is good news. We've been saying this, that it says this. It begins by saying that God loves me. The narrative of scripture is that God loves us, that he created in love, he pursues us in love, and he will hold us in love forever. It begins with the fact that God loves us. But the gospel also tells us this, that we are sinners. We don't have good news without bad news. We don't have the joy of the championship without the drought of a championship for all those years beforehand. That you and I are sinners. That we don't always like to think about that, but we know it's true about ourselves. And sometimes we may be honest with ourselves, we have a hard time acknowledging that, and others even, that we are sinners. Not that we just mess up sometimes, not that we're just not perfect, but we are wholly sinful in our nature, separated from God. But the gospel tells us that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, while we were against God, that Jesus made his way to us and died in our place while we were still in our sin. It's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel tells us that Jesus was buried, that he is alive, and that he is coming back. We're going to kind of zoom into that today a little bit, this fact that Jesus is alive. The gospel tells us that when I say yes to Jesus, when I put my faith and my trust and my hope in Christ and say, I believe who you say you are, I believe that I need you, that we are saved from our sin and into his family forever. Forever. And so we've been kind of walking through, we're kind of going along this book by a guy named J.D. Greer called The Gospel, and we've been walking through this prayer he has in there. You can, you can download this prayer on the app, we'll throw it up here on the screen, you can even just write it down, take a screenshot of it, whatever. But it says this, we've been unpacking this for the last six weeks. 
in Christ, there's nothing I could do that would make you love me more and nothing I've done that makes you love me less. Your presence, your approval are all I need for everlasting joy. Not temporary happiness, not bubbly nice days, but for everlasting joy. As you have been to me, so I will be to others. When we unpack the idea that Christ had died for us while we were still in our sin, as he has been to us, we want to be to others the same way that he loved us. We looked at this last week. As as I pray, I measure your compassion by the cross. Then today we're going to look at your power by the resurrection. Last week, Dan unpacked this. He drew a bunch of pictures. It's powerful. The idea of God's love and of his compassion. And we looked at how the cross is how we measure his love for us. So we looked at the magnitude of God's holiness. That his purity, his holiness is beyond what we can imagine and comprehend. And Dan kind of walked us through, if we just view God as the big man upstairs, as kind of this American deity that wants to give us a nice life, and we don't see ourselves really as that sinful, we have a real small cross. But the more that we understand God's holiness, his greatness, his purity, we go to the deep end of the pool and we start to see, you know what? I am way more sinful than I realize. And the cross becomes bigger and bigger. And what we see at the cross is that he is more holy than we understand, that we are more sinful than we realize. And we ask ourselves, how do we know that God loves us? How do we know that he cares about us, that he's compassionate towards us? And what we said is that we look to the cross and the cross alone is evidence of that. We are so tempted to be like, why does, how do I know God loves me? Well, he just gave me this family and he gave me this wonderful job and, you know, life has just been so great and, you know, even through hard times, he still loves me. And those things are good. Those are blessings, sure. But those things can change. If we're basing God's love for us based off of my situations, my, my happiness, my, my blessings, so to say, those change all the time. That we, we measure God's compassion by looking at the cross. How do I know he loves me? He died for me. How do I know that he, that he isn't indifferent towards me? Because he came and dwelt as one of us and died in our place. It's how we measure his love. We look to the objective truth of the cross. And so today, we are going to round out this series by looking at the power of the gospel. The power of the God. I feel like it's the power of the Lord. Like, I feel like this is the most charismatic uh, sermon I've ever done. But this is so important as we talk about this, because sometimes the power of the gospel, it kind of sounds like a little bit like amorphous, right? It kind of sounds like it's kind of like, are you talking about miracles? Are you talking about plagues? Are you talking about, you know, Old Testament crazy stories of parting of seas and all these kind of things? Are we talking about TV preachers, which... Which I guess if you're watching this online or on your TV, I'm kind of a TV preacher, you know, so just forgive me for that. But what do we think about when we think about God's power? How do we measure God's power? How do we see God's power? How do we know that it's working? That he is able? How do we know that God's power? How do we know that he can transform me? The people around me? Does, does the gospel have any teeth to it? How do we know this message and this truth is powerful how is it displayed in our lives? How do we see God's power? Sometimes we, you know, we look out at the state of the world, like we see God kind of, how is he working in the world, right? And so we turn on the news and all these different kind of things, and you're like, it doesn't, it doesn't look like he is sometimes. You know what I mean? It's almost like you turn the channel as quick as you can because you don't see God's power displayed in the world all the time. So sometimes we're like, well, maybe that's because he works through his church. And so we, that's where we see God's power. We look at the church and and sometimes it looks like the church is more disunified than it's ever been. I mean, there's, there's a leaders falling left and right. There's scandals all through the church. And you're like, that doesn't look very powerful. 
And so sometimes we're like, well, you know, I, I, I look to my own life. I've seen God's power work in my own life. And these things are true, right? So we look at that and that's how we see God's power is at work in our own lives until, until we drop the ball or until our circumstance violently changes or until things look different. And then we kind of start to, well, was that God's power? Or was that just circumstance? Was that God's power or did I just do it on my own? You know, sometimes we, we look to even like our prayer log, like how many answered prayers do I have? Because that'll tell me how God's power is working. And our default as human beings is to look to subjective answers, situational answers to see if God is object, objectively powerful. What do I mean by that? We oftentimes, you know, we decide if God's working based on what we can see, what we can measure, if things are looking the way that we prefer them to be looking, if it makes sense to us, if it all adds up on paper, if it works, then we say, yes, God is powerful. He works. We had, someone got us a, a, one of those Roomba things, like those vacuum cleaners that go around your house. It's almost, we kind of treat it like our dog. It's kind of like a dog that does the opposite of what a dog does. But we have this, we have this Roomba. One time he spread a raspberry all over our white carpet. But it, I initially got this Roomba and I turned him on and he swept the house. And then after like a couple weeks, he stopped sweeping the house. And I thought, he doesn't work. He's broken. I put him in the closet for a couple years until we had a baby. And there's Cheerios everywhere. I brought the Roomba back out and I realized I just didn't know how it worked. I had to change this thing and whatever, you know, like you would a dog. I just didn't know how it worked. And because, because it stopped working the way I thought it should work, I just thought it didn't work. And so often we look at God's power. And if we're honest, that's the reason a lot of us don't believe in God, or at least we struggle with doubt, is we're like, I just don't see his power at work the way I expect it to. And for some of us, for followers of Jesus, we say in our hearts and our minds, we know God's in control. We know he's sovereign. And we, we, we believe that mentally. And so we, we trust the good news of the gospel. We say God's sovereign over everything. But we don't truly believe in our hearts that his power is at work. We just kind of, yep, he's in control, but we don't truly let that sink in our hearts that his power is at work and that the gospel has inherent power. And so guys, as we unpack this today, my hope, my hope is that we would begin to see and believe how God's power is different than what we think it is and it's more beautiful than what we expect. I want to be honest with you guys, this this week I've, I've struggled to get here. This message has been a, a struggle to put skin on. And also, as I understand it myself, it's been a lot of waking up early and kind of staring at this piece of paper and kind of writing and just wrestling that, Lord, help this make sense to me as we walk through this together. But what we're going to look at is the end of this gospel prayer that says this, I'll measure your power by what? By the resurrection. Just as we measure God's objective love by the cross. We know that God objectively loves us. It doesn't change. It isn't an emotional thing. It isn't subjective depending upon our circumstances, but it's proved at the cross that in the same sense, God's power, we will not measure by exactly what we can see, by what we can feel, but we'll measure it by the power of the resurrection. For the rest of the day, I want to unpack what that looks like, that we might just begin to get our minds wrapped around it in a small way. Paul says this in Philippians 3. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, the power of his resurrection and the participation of his sufferings becoming like him in his death. We'll circle back to that. But we measure God's power by the resurrection. We measure it by the resurrection. But here's the truth. This isn't going to sound powerful. It's not going to sound helpful. It's not going to sound practical if the resurrection is just a phrase we throw around at Easter. 
If it's just a church word that appears Easter and we don't grab onto the heart of what resurrection is, that the resurrection, when Jesus rose from that grave 2,000 years ago after being dead in the tomb that Easter morning, that God was declaring his power and control over the biggest weapon the enemy had, over sin and death. That the resurrection was Jesus kicking down the doors of hell and taking names. Revelation says, behold, I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. You see this picture of Jesus just spinning the keys of hell and death around his finger, right? Like this powerful picture that the resurrection validated all that Jesus said and all that he did. It was the validation of all that. With no resurrection, if Jesus did not actually rise from the dead, you and I are still in our sin. We still have to deal with our sin. We are still dead. The resurrection wasn't just the past fact, this thing that happened, but it was the beginning of a new reality that Jesus is ushering in. It was the, it was the first fruits of the new creation. What do I mean by that? We look forward to the hope of Jesus making all things new that he will recreate heavens and earth and make a new city that we will dwell in with him. That is our hope. And the, the beginning of that new creation, we see it the resurrection. Jesus's resurrection was the, was the first flower that blooms in March that tells us that a new life, that a new season, that new spring is coming. That's what the resurrection was. It was the end of our sin and the beginning of a new existence. It's the heart of everything we believe about Christianity. It's what propelled the early church to go into all the world, was the resurrection. If the resurrection is not true, you should turn this off and go do something else. If Jesus did not rise from the grave, we are still in our sin and our faith is futile, is what Paul says. That the resurrection is the center of everything we believe and we judge God's power by the resurrection. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Paul's praying, he's like, I want you to get this. It's not just an easy applicable fact, but I want your heart to begin to shape around this in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And look at this. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. Look what he says. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. He wants us to get a hold of this. That this power that is at work within those who believe is the same power that was at work when Jesus rose from the dead. He goes on in Ephesians 3, the end of the passage we looked at last week when he's talking about the dimensions of God's love. At the end of that, in verse 20, he says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that what is at work within us. It begs the question, what, what power is at work within us? What, because if, if we're being honest with ourselves, I don't, I know myself. I live in Norton. I drive an old car. I get up and set. Like, I don't, I don't feel there's this power at work within us. You might be like, I don't, tell me more about this power that's inside of me. But this is what Paul wants us to be enlightened, wants our, the eyes of our heart to be open to is this power that is at work within us. What is this power? The power that is at work within us this same power that, that resurrected Jesus from the grave that is at work within us is the power of the Holy Spirit. 
It isn't willpower. It isn't self-confidence. It isn't either kind of some subjective emotion. But as a follower of Jesus, it's something that is objectively true. Paul, Paul explains this a little bit in Romans 8. In Romans 8, he's talking about this flesh and the spirit. The flesh is our sin nature. It's my grumpiness, my self-centeredness, my, my desire to put me as number one. That's my flesh. And he's talking about the spirit that is at work within us. Look what Paul says, 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God, what, lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, what? The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Not your righteousness. The Spirit gives us life because of the righteousness of Christ, because of the record of Christ. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you. Paul's explaining that this Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that raised Jesus from the dead dwells inside of the believer. It's the power that is at work within us. The resurrection power of God that is at work within us is this Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit. And if we're honest, the Holy Spirit is hard to get a hold of. He's hard to understand. Like, is he this force? Is he this wind? Is he this feeling? Is he this motion? Does he, what, does he just do all these miracles, healing? Like, what is the Holy Spirit? Who is he? Paul is saying that he is the power that is at work within his people. I want to unpack this, in a, in, and I want to look at just two words today. I want you to write them down. We're going to unpack them a little bit as, as we seek to understand this together. The first way that we see the power of the Spirit at work within us, at work within the story of the gospel, is through regeneration. You can write that word down, regeneration. That the power, we have to get a hold of the fact that the power of God's Spirit raises us from spiritual death to spiritual life in the new creation. That's what Paul's talking about. The Spirit. It brought Jesus from death to life, resurrects our dead souls. Only God can bring dead things to life. If something is dead, if I chop down a tree in my yard, it's not going to spring back up and grow back. It's not going to happen. I know we have stories of people who are dead for three hours on an operating table, but that, there's no story of anybody who's sitting in a morgue for three days who was raised from the dead. Only God has the power to bring life from death. It's the hope that we hold on to that brought Jesus from death to life. And as we look to the age to come, it's what will bring our bodies to life is the spirit of God, the power at work within us. And this is, this is the heart of God. This is the heart of salvation. When we say yes to Jesus, we didn't just like say yes to an equation in our head and we just kind of like, yep, that's a fact I said yes to. But when we say yes to Jesus, when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, spiritually we are resurrected to new life and this is a work of the Spirit. This is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 2. He says, as for you, you were what? You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who is now at work within those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, what gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We were dead, dead. Not a little bruised, not needed some life tips, not a little misguided, we were dead. 
But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, what he made us alive, even when we were dead in our transgressions. You know this, it is by grace you've been saved. And God raises us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is what baptism is a picture of. Baptism is a picture of us identifying with Christ in his death and being raised to new life. This weekend in our services, we're going to be baptizing the mother and daughter. We'll be celebrating that picture. They put their faith in Jesus, and now they want everyone to know they have raised to new life in Christ. It's a picture of that. Because of our sin, we are born spiritually dead. We are dead on arrival, right? We have a sin nature. We inherited a sin nature because of Adam. Because of one man's sin, death came to all people. This is why we don't need remodeled. We don't need fixed up. We don't need Chip and Joe to come put some shiplap on our hearts. We need to be recreated. And this is done through the power of the Spirit. We say yes to Jesus. In the Gospel, in the Gospels of John, Jesus has this interaction with this religious leader named Nicodemus. And he was this, this religious leader who would have had a great record who would have been a, a very upright dude, right? Had a, had a great record, followed the law, all these things. And yet Jesus is preaching this, this different thing and he's following Jesus and he's asking questions and he meets Jesus at night to ask him questions. And Jesus talks about this idea of being born again. You may be familiar with that term, especially if you grew up in church, you know, gotta be born again. John 3, 5 through 7, Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus. And he says, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and what? Of the Spirit. It says, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised by me saying you must be born again in the Spirit. The power that's at work within us when we say yes to Jesus brings us from death to life. A guy named A.W. Tozer says, The moment... The Spirit has quickened us to life and regeneration. Our whole being senses its kinship to God and leaps up in joyous recognition. That is the heavenly birth without which we cannot see the kingdom of God. It is, however, not an end, but an inception. For now begins the glorious pursuit, the heart's happy exploration of the infinite riches of God. Now, this regeneration is the beginning, right? That if you are watching this and you are a follower of Jesus, you didn't just agree with some salvation formula. But you were dead and when you put your trust in Jesus, the Spirit has raised you to new life. J.C. Ryle says there's no salvation without regeneration. No spiritual life without a new birth. No heaven without a new heart. And the power of the Spirit brings us from death to life. The second word I want you to write down is this. If the power at work within us regenerates our heart, the Spirit regenerates our heart, the Spirit indwells us. Write down this word indwelling, that God's Spirit is a power that resides within us. Now, this is hard to get a hold of. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's radical in some nature. It's almost a little confusing. But I think this is such a powerful picture we're going to unpack. If you look at the story of the Bible, God's presence His spirit dwelt where? At the beginning in Genesis 1, we see God's presence, God's spirit. See him hovering over the face of the waters. He creates all things. His spirit dwells with Adam and Eve in the garden. There without sin. We see God's presence, his spirit walking in the garden with them. One with them. Because of sin, it's separate, right? God's spirit is not going to dwell with sinful beings. It's separated, right? And all all through the Old Testament, we see this picture of God's presence showing up in a pillar of fire. 
in a cloud of smoke as this storm on Sinai, this presence in a burning bush that if you were to touch God, set your eyes upon God, dead. Why? Because of the holiness we talked about last week, the pureness and the holiness of God that we talked about last week. You don't walk up, hey Lord, what's up? That's not how it works. He's holy. His presence is unapproachable. And so in the Old Testament, we see the book of Leviticus is this whole gnarly long book about the process of which the, the priests can purify themselves, purify all these different things, cleanse themselves, that they may enter the presence of God in the tabernacle in the temple. That the only way that the high priest can go and dwell in God's presence is this whole book, this whole litany of ways that they must purify and cleanse themselves to be in God's presence. Then we get to the New Testament, we see Jesus showing up as a human in the incarnation, which is this great mystery, right? We see these different ways that Jesus, but before Jesus leaves, he tells his disciples, I must go so that the advocate may come. He's going to do greater things through you than I am. It kind of makes you scratch your heads and the disciples are like, Jesus, what are you talking about? When Jesus leaves, you see at Pentecost that the Holy Spirit comes. That God's Spirit comes and it begs the question, where does God's Spirit dwell now? The Father is in heaven. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, interceding on behalf of his people. Well, where is God's Spirit? Where is the Holy Spirit? Where does that dwell now? The Spirit of God. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God. You are not your own, but you were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. That the Spirit of God in times past dwelt in the temple. If I wanted to go into the presence of God, I had to go to the temple, had to go to the tabernacle, I had to cleanse myself and go to the temple to commune and be with God. But now through the power of the gospel, through the good news message of the gospel, that God's holy presence dwells within me. But how can that be? Because we're grumpy, we're sinful, we're broken. As we looked at last week, we are men and women of unclean lips. How does the holy presence of God dwell within me? How can this be? It's because Jesus dealt with our sin at the cross. He made me spiritually clean accounted for my sin, dealt with my sin problem, raised me to new life, and now his spirit takes up dwelling within me, that Jesus has cleansed me to be a vessel of the Holy Spirit. I don't have to go to the temple. I don't have to go find God's presence. Now, we still have that mindset. I gotta go to the priest. I gotta go to the church. I gotta, that's where God's presence is. God's presence dwells within the believer. This is a radical thing. I had a conversation with a friend of a different faith and he thought it was, he thought it was blasphemous that God would become a man. He thought it was blasphemous that we would kill God on a cross. But if I tell him that the presence of God now dwells within us as believers, it's scandalous, right? And you start to see how the gospel sounds like good news. That the power of God dwells within his people What does that look like practically? How do, I, how do I acknowledge that reality? Because if you're like me, you don't feel that way. The power of God is inside of you. You're like, uh, I don't, you don't know me, right? I'd encourage you write down, circle back to Galatians 5. Second half of Galatians 5, 
Verse 16 and then 24 through 26 say this. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, what let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. We talked about this idea of the flesh and the Spirit. That our sin, we, we, still, we still live in this world in our sin nature, right? But this reality is presence of God that is at work within us, that his spirit dwells within us. And what Paul is instructing the church in Galatia to do is to keep in step with that spirit. Here's the irony. Here's the irony of how God's power works within us. That it shows up as I die to myself. His power takes the front seat as as he chisels away the selfishness of my flesh. We want human control. We want power. We want strength. We want to show. But the gospel calls us to die to our selfish desires so that the power of the Spirit may take the front seat. Not something we conjure up. Not something like, okay, I got to get the power of the Spirit working in me. No, we just got to get out of the way that we die to ourselves that the Spirit shows up. I just read an author that said, sometimes I don't think God allows us to see the ways in which he's working in us because if we did, we'd get really prideful and conceited. And so we, just go read Galatians 5. We yield to the Spirit's power. We humble ourselves so that the Spirit might show up in our lives. What does this look like? I think it can look a lot of different ways. Maybe it looks like when I've been wronged and I've got this comeback that is going to just equal the score, it's going to settle them. I submit my hurt and my trust to God. I die to that anger and that bitterness that the Spirit may have restoring power at work within me. That when I am, when I look at the news and I hear what's going on in the world and out of my fear and out of my anxiety and my flesh, I'm tempted to grab the steering wheel and take power and control into my own hands that I yield to the the power of the Spirit that's at work within me, that bears the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and what? And self-control. That when I feel like I deserve to satisfy myself, maybe sexually, maybe it's financially, that, you know, I deserve this because of X, Y, and Z, that I die to what I think I deserve for the sake of God's Spirit working within me for the sake of others. When I have a good reason to think the worst about someone because of what they said, because of what they did, because of what they believe, because of what they associate themselves with. When I have good reason to speak or to think or to slander natively about that person, I die to that selfish desire that the Spirit might come to the front seat and I might see that person as Christ sees them when he died for me. When I'm tempted to repay evil for evil, to take advantage, to look out for for priority number one, to self-justify, to slander, to be divisive, I yield to what the Spirit wants to do through me. We are called to die to ourselves because there is no resurrection without crucifixion. There There is no power of resurrection without the power of death. That's why the first passage looked at, Philippians 3, Paul says, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, but he doesn't stop there. He says, but in, his part- in the participation of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That the life of, of, of keeping in step with the Spirit, 
by beginning to see this power at work within us is us getting out of the way and dying to our selfish desires, which if we're honest, sounds a lot more like weakness than it does power. It sounds a lot more like weakness than it does power. And that is because the power of God is foolishness to our world. The power of God looks foolish to our world. And if we're honest, the more that we cling to the world, the more that we cling to the way that the world says we should have power, by the way that the world says we can have control, God's power can look like foolishness to us. This is my favorite passages. I want, you to, I want you to write this down. I encourage you to circle back to this Galatians 5 passage, 1 Corinthians 1, 18, then 22 through 23. It says the message, that's the gospel, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the what? It's the power of God. He says, Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. It's, it's interesting, these two groups of people he's talking to, these Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews want signs, the, 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 Gentile, or the Greeks want, want wisdom. You know, the, the Jews at the time, they, they demanded signs. They wanted the Jesus to show up with a bang. This Messiah that they thought was going to come was going to come and take over politically, was going to kick in the doors and show up and right all these wrongs and set them above Rome. Why? They wanted this sign. They wanted this sign of power. Many times throughout his ministry, people were like, Jesus, show us a sign. We want a sign. Many of us were like, if God just showed up in this way in my life, if he just answered the prayer this way, if he just did this thing, then I would believe. And my friends, the story of scripture is a story of people who see God show up and continue to turn their backs. We want to see God's power displayed through stuff we can see. We, like the Jews, want to see signs. Show us something, Jesus. Make this leg grow back. Show, make this reality come true. If you're God, then blank. If you're God, then turn these stones into bread. If you're God, then throw yourself down and raise yourself up. And you know who we begin to sound like? We begin to sound like Satan. Because we start to see God's power, we think it works the way that our world works. It's not the way God's power works. That we, some of us, we look for signs. Show us something cool, God. But he says, Jews look for signs, Greeks look for wisdom. We want, we want the power of God, this message of the gospel, to make the most practical sense that it can. We want it to be a good investment of our time. We want it to be a good investment of our money, of our lives. We want it to all make sense and add up in paper. We want a good return on investment from this whole Jesus thing. This is how oftentimes the power of God, the power of the gospel gets watered down to things like life tips and five-step programs and happy, healthy living because we, we don't want the true power of God. We just want, we want it just to make sense. We want it to be helpful, practical tips to have a healthy life here. We want signs. We want this practical wisdom. But the message of the cross, the power of God, is foolishness. God's wisdom looks like foolishness and his, his power looks like weakness. Look what Paul goes on to say in this 1 Corinthians passage. It says, To those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, both you and I, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. We, we want signs. We want to see God's power. Show us a sign. And I'm not saying that he doesn't. I'm not saying that there aren't miracles in our lives and different things that happen that we see the hand. I'm not saying that isn't true. But we want signs, but he calls us to live by faith, not by sight. We want everything to make worldly sense, but he says it's going to sound like foolishness. We want position, but he says, make yourself servants. No matter the position, we, we in our, our worldly power, we want position and influence. And once we get that, then we get this world going the way it should. We see that all over the world today. But he calls us to serve. Why? Because he, as the ultimate king, served. We oftentimes want to pick up the sword for power. Yet he says to pick up your cross. We want to gain power, and yet he calls us to yield our control, yield our power to the power that is work within us. We want a bulldozer to come in and take over, yet the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus gives us a seed. And it all sounds backwards. And when we begin to understand that, we begin to grasp the power of the gospel. The power of the resurrection begins to turn an upside-down world right side up. And we see the power of the kingdom of God. And my friends, for the next 16 weeks, we are going to be walking through the book of Matthew, the book of Acts, zeroing in on the kingdom of God. So often we can understate the kingdom or we can overgeneralize the kingdom, yet Jesus comes and says the kingdom of God is at hand. And it looks different than the kingdoms of this world. The power of God on the ground looks different than the powers of our world. What if the power of God is not some revolutionary power, some power that we can drum up and create and feel and go conquer the world? What if, what if that's not entirely what God's power is? What if it's not a revolutionary power, but it's a transformative power? We live in a world that wants to see signs and rock bands and celebrities and political heroes and great orators and geniuses and advanced technology. We want to see it now. Yet God, through the story of Scripture, through this, this family line, gives us a Savior that comes from a backwoods town and hangs out with the wrong people and preaches an upside-down message that makes people scratch their heads, that tells stories of the kingdom that don't quite make sense. And then he gets crucified. What if... The Spirit of God that dwells in you wants to plant seeds and wants us to water seeds that we might bear fruit that would plant seeds that would begin to grow that would give shade to those that are hurting that would bear fruit that would taste of the life of Christ and that that might spread and that that might take root. And then it might begin to create a forest that bears fruit, that provides shade, that changes and transforms the world. 
we want technology and power, and yet God gives us this agricultural picture of a seed. In our marriage, we, we, want, we want the one quick answer. Give us the book. Give us the app that's going to give us the answers. But what if this, this power that's at work within us is this constant dying to ourselves so that the power of the Spirit might heal what's broken in our marriage? We, we, so we're called to forgive and sometimes we don't feel like forgiving and so we want the one book that's going to teach us how to forgive. We want that person to say all the things so that I can forgive them. But what if forgiveness is a seed that grows within us and bears fruit? What if the, the chaos of our world, of the moral and political and social and all the stuff that we see just coming to bear in our world, what if the answer isn't a, a person in power or a quick response or a certain ideology. I'm not saying those things are bad, but what if the power of God is the seed of us dying to ourselves that comes from a place that we aren't looking? And it's his people with the spirit at work within them dying to themselves Entrusting the Spirit of God, having the conversations that He's calling us to have, showing the forgiveness that He's calling us to show, serving those that He has put in our life to serve, to show grace to those who need grace, to be agents of the cross in a world that is upside down. What if that is what the power at work within us looks like? Isn't a revolutionary kick down the doors and take names, but a transformative power of a seed that grows into a forest beyond what we can even grasp. I think when we start to see that, we start to see the power of God is different than what we expected it to be. So God, I pray that you would help us to see your power at work within us. Jesus, help us to die to ourselves. That we would die to our anger, to our bitterness, to our fears, to our anxieties, to our selfish desires, to our selfish ambition, to our vices that keep us at the center. Jesus, we pray that you would help us to die to those things so that your spirit may guide us into all truth, that our conversations that our interactions, that our thoughts, that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be focused on your power and your kingdom. And the seed that has taken root in our life would bear fruit in the lives of those around us, that Jesus, that you might continue to make a harvest of righteousness through the work of your spirit in the lives of your people. Lord, we are thankful that we don't understand everything that you are doing, but that you call us to live in your power. It's because of Christ we pray. Amen.